If you uh, have ever found yourself suffering, it should be very encouraging to you or found yourself being persecuted. Uh, It's important for us to remember that Peter is writing this letter of 1 Peter to the believers in that day who found themselves suffering. He's talked about a number of topics, but the main idea is they're suffering in persecution. They're going through a difficult season, a hard time, and the reason they're going through it, it's a result of their faith. And even even though in our country we, we may not face the kind of persecution that they were facing in that day, not to say we never will, we're just, we just probably wouldn't face that right now. Don't forget that the Bible wasn't just written for the Americans, that there are many people around the world who are facing persecution, who need to hear this kind of, uh, the, these words of encouragement that Peter has, but also you may find yourself, maybe you're not being persecuted where you're being removed from your home, but maybe your faith is causing you some suffering in your, in your life. Maybe one spouse is a believer, another spouse isn't. Whatever, whatever it might be, that, you know, your faith can often bring difficult seasons into your life, and there's this idea that because we're Christians, everything should be perfect and, and just peachy keen, and, and that's not the way that it is. And Peter wants to tell these uh, readers, including us, that, hey, life's going to be difficult sometimes as a Christian. But he wants to say it doesn't stop there. There's something beyond that into eternity. So we're going to uh, pick up with a quick reminder. Last week we saw Peter give them three things to focus on when facing suffering or persecution. So these are three good things to remember. Number one, he said, sanctify the Lord in your heart which means set the Lord apart, literally sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And we talked about that last week, about what it means to to sanctify him, to set him up. Let him be the one in charge of your life. Let him be the one that you're coming under. And number two, he said, always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. And he said, do it with meekness and with fear and with respect. In other words, when you suffer difficulty, when you suffer persecution, the rest of the world is going to look on and go, how do you have so much hope in that? How are you able to endure such a hard situation? How are you able to, to get through such, such, how can you carry such a weight? And you can say, let me share my Lord with you. Let me share my Christ with you. Let me share my Savior with you. And lastly, he said it's important to always have a good conscience, a clear conscience. That way, when they defame you for doing good, they will be the ones that are ashamed. They will be the ones that are feeling bad. And at the end of the message last week, Peter reminded his readers that Jesus also suffered. So if you are suffering, if you are being persecuted, if you're in a difficult situation, if you're suffering for doing good for whatever the reason, you're in good company. You're not the only one. That's good to know. And this week, Peter will tell his readers and us that although Christ suffered for doing good, he was victorious. And today, all the angels and authorities and powers have been placed underneath of his feet, underneath of him. And the same is true for us. When we suffer for doing good, he already told us that there's a blessing involved. Perhaps an eternal blessing. We may not see it initially, but there's one coming in eternity. And that's where our focus needs to be. Let's pick up in verse 18 of 1 Peter chapter 3. I know we covered it last week, but let's just keep things in context. One of the things that's always important to do with the scriptures is keep them in context. We're going to see some important doctrinal points this morning, but we want to keep the big picture. We want to keep the overview of what Peter's doing and who he's encouraging here. So in chapter 3, verse 18, he begins this way. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Yes, Jesus suffered for our sins. 
He was the just. He is the just. We, the sinners, were the unjust. He suffered for you and I. Why did he endure such suffering? He told you right there, so that he might bring us to God. He wanted to reconcile us with God. The only way he could do that was to pay the penalty for our sins. He was put to death in the flesh. He hung on a cross. He was buried in an empty tomb, but he rose again on the third day by the power of the Holy Spirit. By the same power that raised him from the grave is the same Holy Spirit that we have available to us. Then in verse 19, we're going to see what else the Holy Spirit led him to do. Look there in verse 19. It says, by whom? By the Holy Spirit. That's who he's referring to. By whom? Also, he went and he preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. This can be a really confusing area of Scripture. And while we're going to dive into a few of the details, keep the big picture in mind. Who did he preach to here? Who's he preaching to? It says very clearly he preached to the spirits. And some people believe these were human spirits, that this is the place where people would go before they died. It's, they believe that this is in Luke chapter 16, it talks about Abraham's bosom, that this is where the saints would go, or the believers in God would go before Christ was ever came to earth and rose again. They would be, go there and be held. But that's not what I think is happening here. The spirits that he's talking about here, although they believe that, some people do, it's more likely that he's referring to demonic spirits to demonic spirits here. John MacArthur pointed out Christ directed his proclamation to the spirits, not human beings. If he had been talking to human beings, he would have used the Greek word for souls instead of the Greek word for spirits. The word for spirits, the Greek word there is only used in the New Testament to speak, never refers to people. He's not referring to people there. Unless it's qualified, it's referring to the spirits of the righteous. But here, because he says spirits, it's likely that he's preaching to demonic spirits. Now, did you notice where he was at? Where he went to preach to them? Where are they? They're in prison. They're in prison. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 tells us, God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Well, what else did the scripture tell us about these spirits? And I, we're, we're kind of going a little bit deeper here, but we're going to come back to the big picture. But what else did Jesus tell us, or what else did Peter tell us about the spirits? We know they were formally disobedient, it says. They were formally disobedient. When, when were they disobedient? He tells us there, during the days of Noah. They were formally disobedient during the days of Noah. So while the ark was being prepared... After the ark was completed, it started to rain. He then told us only eight souls were saved. And this was Noah's family. And this is where things kind of get a little bit confusing. If you want to, turn back to Genesis chapter 6 with me. I want to give you an insight to what God was thinking in the days of Noah. Genesis chapter 6. We will find the days of Noah was a time of both of gross sin, both for humans and demons. Listen to what Genesis chapter 6 says. I'm going to start in verse 1, and we'll probably read down through about verse 6. Way back, first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. And keep your finger there in 1 Peter, because we'll be back there shortly. Genesis 6, verse 1 says, Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, that means the population is growing, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. The sons of God is referring to fallen angels there. 
Most people believe this was a time on earth where demons manifested themselves as human beings and actually married for themselves human wives. So you have a, a mixed marriage, if you will, both demonic and human. It's possible that because of this intermixing of the demonic world and the human world is why the Lord had to cause the flood and completely wipe out all of mankind, but yet preserve the only possible true bloodline there was, which would have been Noah and his family. Because the Messiah had to come from a, from a pure bloodline. So it's very possible. Listen to verse 3. The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. This is believed the offspring of that demonic human relationship. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of his thoughts and that every intent of his thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Now, I understand when we dig into stuff like this, it gets a little bit confusing. And I want to tell you something. Uh, number one, this is one of those questions you want to ask Peter when you get to heaven. So you say, hey, Pete, that thing you wrote about at first, can you give us me a little more clarity? Because we're trying to understand it with the best that we can using the Bible to interpret the Bible. But I got to admit, it still gets kind of foggy sometimes. But here's what we know. One commentator put it this way, and it's pretty clear. Apparently, the oldest identification of those imprisoned spirits understood them as fallen angels of Genesis chapter 6. So you can go back to 1 Peter, if you will. So even back to the apostolic age, when they, they, when they talked about this, this is what they understood, these, these fallen spirits here, to be the fallen angels in Genesis chapter 6 that it's being described there. It was widely known and generally taken for granted in the apostolic era, which is probably why it's not written on here, is they, they, they all understood that. But I also want you to notice something before we go on a little further. This section gives us some insight into the character of God. Did you notice how it described him as divine and long-suffering. God is long-suffering. It's one of his characteristics. How long did it take Noah to build an ark? 120 years. 120 years before the rain came. Can you imagine what people were saying as he built this ark in his front yard or his backyard or his side yard, wherever he built it? It took him 120 years to build the ark. Do you realize that's 12 decades? Do you realize that's at least three generations? From grandma to kids to grandkids. There's at least three generations there. You can't tell me that God isn't long-suffering and doesn't give people plenty of time to repent from their sins. 120 years. So Jesus, back to, back to 1 Peter, Jesus went to preach to the spirits in prison. The question we have to ask is, well, what exactly did he preach? What did, what did he preach? And I got to be clear, we're not sure. These are one of those questions. And, and I think as I, as I studied and I listened to what people wrote about it and what they said about it, I really liked what G. Campbell Morgan wrote about this section. Here's what he said. What his message was, we are not told. Why only those disobedient in the days of Noah are mentioned is not stated. What the purpose or result of Christ's preaching was, it is not revealed. On all of these points, we may form our own conclusions, but we have no authority for anything approaching dogmatic teaching. In other words, this is not the place to build doctrine. This is not where you're going to hang eternity on, on what he preached to these people in prison. Peter gives us a little bit of insight, but we really have to go, I, 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 well, what, well, what do you think, Rob? What do you think he preached? Personally, I think he went down. 
I think he shared the gospel with them. Not so that they could get saved because they're already in prison. But I think by sharing the gospel, he was declaring his victory over the evil spirits. You see, I believe this was a completion in his triumph over evil. I believe he had to let the whole world, including the demonic world, know that he triumphed over evil on the cross. Even the evil that happened before the flood. Even all the way back to the fallen angels. Even the ones that were bound and thrown in prison for what they did. He had to go back and say, I am victorious. The cross is where I saved mankind. He was declaring his victory. He went to those evil imprisoned spirits and he said he was victorious. I am victorious. Consider for this for a moment. Ever since the fall of Satan and the angels that he took with him, there has always been an ongoing conflict between the angelic forces of good and evil. It is happening in the world around us. After the devil's apparent victory in the Garden of Eden, Right? Apparently he won there, as so what it seems like. God promised Satan something. He said, eventually, destruction by the Messiah will come. He will triumph over you. He will crush your head, but yet you will bruise his heel in victory. He will suffer a minor wound. And since that time, and the scripture teaches this, Satan has been trying to prevent or wipe out the Jewish people to destroy the messianic lineage. He's been trying ever since. That's why the whole world at different points in history have turned against the Jews. When that failed, Satan attempted to kill Jesus through King Herod, did he not? We know that he did. When that failed, he attempted to tempt Christ in the wilderness just to give it all up. I'll give you what you want. I'll give you everything if you'll just fall down and worship me. Yet Jesus went back to the word of scripture and he said, it is written. And he refused to give it up. After that, Satan incited the Jewish leaders to have Christ crucified. Can you imagine the demonic party that happened in prison and around the world when Christ died on that cross? Perhaps they didn't realize, perhaps they hadn't, been, hadn't come to fruition because they don't have the ability of looking into the future. Perhaps they didn't know what had actually taken place. And there he shows up in the midst of them, victorious for all eternity. Not only for himself, who they thought they, 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 thought they had destroyed, he says, I not only am I victorious for me, I have conquered sin and death for all those who would follow me. You see, that's my belief on why he went there. If you're reading this letter, or if you're here this morning and you're suffering persecution or you're suffering difficulty, Peter just told you that between Jesus' death and resurrection, he descended into prison where the spirits were being held and said, I am victorious. I am, my blood has covered the sins of all those who will accept me. Which means if we are in him, we are victorious. Amen to that. And notice what Peter says next there in verse 21. He says, there is also an antitype, or antitype, which now saves us. <laughs> Baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. Well, how do we get that? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. Now I realize when we read some of our Bible versions, this can be a little bit confusing. So I want to read to you verses 19 through 21 in the New Living Translation. If you're not aware, I teach from the New King James Version, but I think the New Living Translation, it's a more modern translation. I don't use it to study with, but I think it, sometimes it puts things in really good, easy-to-understand perspective. So just listen as I read this to you. I'm going to start in verse 19. He says, So he went and he preached to the spirits in prison, 
Those who disobeyed God long ago when God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat. Only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. And that water is a picture of baptism, which now saves you. Not by removing the dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience, it is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, before someone says, well, look, he just told you that baptism saves you. Peter's not saying that we're saved through water baptism. I want you to look carefully. Peter says there's an antitype which now saves us. An antitype is something pertaining to that which corresponds in form and structure to something else, either as anticipation of a later reality or as a fulfillment of a prior type. It's a, it's a, it's a copy of something. It's, a, it's, a look, it's similar to something else. Now, if you were to go look up that word in our current Webster's Dictionary, you'd find it means something completely different than it meant back in that day. I would encourage you, if you, want to, if you don't believe me in the definition, go online, Google Webster's 1828 Dictionary, and put that word in and see what it says. It'll give you the definition I just read. Along with that definition follows the Greek word. So Peter's not saying that we're saved through baptism. What he's saying is Noah was saved through water. This is the antitype of our salvation. We are saved through the water, not through the water, but through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The water comes into play. The water of the flood washed away sin and wickedness and brought a new world with a fresh start before God. Your Christian baptism, when you believe on Jesus Christ and your baptism, it's not what washes away your sin, but it's that fresh start before God. It's where you are setting up yourself to say, I'm identifying with the death and the resurrection of my Savior. I am starting over to this point in my life. I've lived it for myself and my flesh, and now I'm going to live it for the Lord. It's that sort of line in the sand, if you will. Water baptism is our outward identification with the death and resurrection of Christ. It's a symbol of us dying in him. We don't physically die. We go into the watery grave like he went into the grave, and we're raised to new life in Christ. It all has to do with what he's done. It's our outward identification with our inward commitment. It's like, like I said, it's a new line in the sand. It's a fresh start. It's drawn. When, when, when the water came during Noah's flood, it wiped out all the evil. It started, it was a fresh start, and the baptism, our spiritual baptism, our Christian baptism is the same thing. But I want you to see something here, because there is a baptism that saves you. It's not your water baptism, but there is a baptism that saves you. Our baptism that saves us is when you are baptized into the body of Christ, when you become a Christian. Now, the mistake that people always make is they hear the word baptism or baptize, and they think, i got to get wet. It has to do with water. The word baptize simply means to immerse in something, to cover, to be covered with something. The Bible speaks of many different baptisms. The baptism of Moses, here we saw the baptism of Noah, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, there's a baptism of fire. There's lots of different baptisms. It's, it's an immersion. So when you see baptism, think of an immersion, okay? Listen to how Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For by one Spirit... We were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit, for in fact the body is not one member, but many. Now let me explain this to you. If you become a Christian, okay, and you say, and you say to me, Rob, I want to get baptized. We're going to head on down to the river, to Rocky Gap, or wherever we do our baptisms, and we're going to, I'm going to take you out of the water, we're going to pray together, I'm going to confirm that you're a Christian, and I am going to be the one baptizing you. I'm the one that's going to hold you down until all that sin runs away from you, until you can't breathe anymore, and then I might let you back up. No, of course, that's not the way it works. 
I will be the one doing the baptizing. When you get saved, when you believe on Jesus Christ, there's a baptism that takes place there. It's the Holy Spirit that does the baptizing. He's the one that immerses you into the body of Christ. For by one Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, we are all baptized into one body. I believe that our brothers and sisters in Christ that think salvation comes through baptism are mistaken because they're looking at baptism only from a water baptism perspective. They're not realizing that baptism is just a, simply a word that it is, an, it is something that's immersed. There's somebody doing the baptism, there's somebody being baptized, and there's something or someone they're being immersed in. When someone's a believer, this Holy Spirit, the moment you come to the realization, Lord, forgive me for my sins, I'm going to follow you, the Holy Spirit says, I'm going to immerse you in Christ. That's how your life gets changed. That's your new birth. That's your, you become a new creation. You're born again because he's the one that does that inside of you. It's not your water baptism that that happens at. Now, verse 22. We're going to kind of bring it back to the big picture side of things. Look what Jesus does after he preaches to the spirits in prison. This is important. Verse 22. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. You see, this is the completeness of his work. This is where he sits today. He took our sins upon himself. He suffered the consequences. He proclaimed victory to the evil spirits. He went to heaven, and now he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And all of these things are placed underneath of him. It's the completion. Angels and authorities and powers are subject to him. Yes, he suffered for doing good, but he was also granted great triumph. The suffering was difficult, but the triumph was great. This proves Peter's point in, in chapter 3, verse 9. When we suffer for doing good, there's a blessing. You see, on this earth, there's suffering that's going to take place. And you're, you may find yourself suffering for doing good, just like Christ did. And just like he is now sits in great triumph, we have to understand that once we endure, there's a blessing coming. There's triumph coming. There's a blessing coming. It'll be worth it. We'll inherit a blessing, just like Christ did. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon related this. to uh, he, he, he took it and he related it to the high priest, ministering to Israel on the Day of Atonement. During, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go beyond the veil into the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And nobody could see what he was doing down there, but the benefit was he was atoning for the sins of the entire nation of Israel. So you couldn't see what was happening, but it was good for him to be there. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon put it. He said, though he was not with them, he was with God, which was better for them. The high priest was more useful to them within the veil than outside of it. He was doing for them out of sight what he could not accomplish in their view. I delight to think that my Lord is with the Father. Sometimes I cannot get to God. My access seems to be blocked by my infirmity. But he is always with God to plead for me. Since Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father... We know that he's interceding on our behalf. Do you ever get to the point where you're like, I can't pray? I just, I don't even know what to say. I'm not even sure. He's interceding for you. He knows what you need. He's interceding on your behalf. So you might be, something might be, some infirmity might be getting in your way, but you've got an advocate with the Father, the Bible teaches. Since he's at the right hand of the Father, since he's interceding on your behalf and interceding on behalf of the church and all of us are part of his church, do you know what that means? It means you're safe. It means you're going to be victorious. Once again, listen to how Charles Spurgeon put it. He said, let not his church tremble. Let, not, let her not think of putting out the hand of unbelief to steady the ark of the Lord. 
The history of the church is to be the history of Christ repeated. She is so betrayed. She is so scourged. She is to be falsely accused and spit upon. She may have her crucifixion and her death, but she shall rise again. Her master rose, and like him, she shall rise and receive glory. You can never kill the church till you can kill Christ, and you can never defeat her till you defeat the Lord Jesus, who already wears the crown of triumph. He's already done it. You can't defeat him. The church can't fail. The the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We are already secure in that. What a blessing that is. If you're suffering, you need to hear these things. You need to know This brought great comfort to those people who were being scattered from their homes, who were being persecuted, and their loved ones were being killed. They're suffering persecution. And Peter says, I want to comfort you with something. Christ suffered too. Christ suffered too, but it's okay because there's coming a day where it's going to be okay, where you're going to receive that blessing. Just keep going, keep enduring. Let's look at chapter 4, verse 1. As Peter calls us to be committed to Christ, even in suffering, through the rejection of our flesh. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. We'll look at like the first maybe five or six verses. He said, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with that or with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. Therefore, Since Jesus suffered in the flesh, Peter says to you and to me and to all those who would receive this letter, arm yourself. Arm yourself with the mind of Christ. God is not calling us to have any commitment other than what Christ had. It's a commitment that we must endure through great struggles and even undue suffering. And to believe there is victory or blessing coming upon its completion. When you consider what it means to arm yourself. What does that mean? It means to take up a weapon and put it to use. Take up, there's something that you have to put on to take up, to hold on to, grasp onto, and you have to be ready to use it or to use it. What's the weapon that he's talking about there? The mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. The weapon we're put to, to put to use is the mind of Christ. Well, what exactly is the mind of Christ? I'm glad you asked that question. First, I'm going to give you a homework assignment. And the title of the homework assignment is, What is the Mind of Christ? So sometime this week, and I wish we had time to do it this morning, but we don't. I want you to begin in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. It's going to start like this. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And I want you to go from there to the end of the, chat, end of the book, from, from Philippians 2, 8 to the end of the book of Philippians. And I want you to determine what is the mind of Christ. That's your homework. Now, for our study this morning, we're going to go look at what Peter has to say. Peter tells us about the mind of Christ also. And we see that it was his obedience in suffering with an eternal perspective of blessing and victory. Christ persevered through suffering for us, but there's an eternal blessing coming. Many of us this morning are not able to receive victory in our flesh. Many of us are struggling with our flesh and we're losing. Why? Because we're not willing to or because we refuse to sacrifice anything in the battle. We refuse to lay something down. We refuse to put something to death. We refuse to sacrifice. We pray prayers like, Lord, take it away from me. Take away the temptation. Lord, get rid of my desire. Lord, make me not want it anymore. And he would say, I've already given you the ability to overcome. Use it. You see, we want it to be easy. 
He's calling us to have the kind of attitude that says, I'm willing to suffer in my flesh. I'm willing to suffer persecution if necessary. I'm willing to tell my flesh no. I'm willing to say no, you can't have that. No, it's okay that it hurts. And to say to my fleshly desires, he calls us to crucify our flesh. To say no to ourselves sometimes. Essentially, Peter here is saying, the person who can endure physical suffering in the flesh for doing good is a person who has ceased to sin. In other words, if you can endure a beating for your faith in Jesus Christ, you're probably not struggling with sin in your flesh any longer. You've probably overcome that. The mere fact that they're enduring persecution means they have ceased from sin. They no longer live for the lust of the flesh, but the will of God. They don't turn from the will of God because it got hard in the flesh. This is why they're being persecuted as Christians, because they're not living like everybody else. When a person suffers physical persecution for the sake of Jesus, it's almost always profoundly changes their outlook regarding sin and the pursuit of the lust of the flesh. The person is more likely to live the rest of his time on this earth for the will of God and not the lust of their flesh. Now, everybody gets hung up on the word ceased from sin. How do you cease from sin? How do you, we, we still have a flesh. We have a body. How do we cease from sin? Listen very carefully. I'm going to read to you what one Greek scholar said. He said this. The verb is passive and literally means the Christian has got release from sin. God broke the power of sin in his life when he saved him. Thus, our reaction to unjust suffering should be that of a saint, not a sinner, since we have, in salvation, been released from sin's compelling power. Another different scholar wrote it this way. He said, the phrase does not mean that he no longer commits any act of sin, but that his old life, dominated by the power of sin, has been terminated. You see, when we become a Christian, we are saying, I'm going to follow Christ. I'm going to, it's not that I'm perfect, but I am not going to allow sin to dominate my life. It's not going to be the thing that drives me day after day, night after night, week after week. Christ is going to be the thing I'm living for. And I don't care if that means I have to crucify my flesh and tell my flesh no sometimes. If that means I have to take a beating in my flesh. If that means I'm going to be persecuted at my job or whatever else. It's okay because it's more important that I live for the will of God than what my flesh wants. And haven't you guys all come to know that if you give your flesh what it really wants, it doesn't satisfy you? When you get the job that you want, when you get the relationship that you want, when you get the house that you want, when you get the whatever thing that you want, there'll still be an emptiness there. You can look and go as far as you want, but there'll still be something that says, I'm missing out on something. I'm, I'm not complete. I'm missing something because you don't have the Lord Jesus Christ. You're missing that, that most important thing. You were created to worship him and to be fellowship with and have fellowship with him. When you, you can't fill that, that, I've heard it said, the God-shaped hole in your heart with new cars and boats and houses and relationships and kids and families. It doesn't work that way. You just can't do it. You'll always find yourself falling short. And once you get it, you'll find yourself disappointed because it didn't meet the expectations you thought. So let me ask you this question. As you sit here this morning, what's the plan for the rest of your life? What do you mean, Rob? What's the plan for the rest of your life? There's only two choices. Are you going to live to please your flesh? Or are you going to live for the will of God? See, that's, just, that's it. It's real simple. Well, no, it's not that simple. No, it really is. Do you want to please God? Is that your desire? Not saying you won't fall short. You have grace for that. But what is the focus? What is the focus? Look what Peter says. Look at his logic there in verse 3. says, for we, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, 
lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regards to these, they, that's the Gentiles, think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. In other words, they can't believe that you don't live like they do. Sadly, many Christians in their hearts and today think that they have not spent enough time doing the will of the ungodly Gentiles. Many Christians haven't come to the realization that you're not missing out by not living for the flesh. You're actually gaining something. Many Christians want to experience more of the world before they make their full commitment to Christ. I'm not done with the world yet. I'm not done with the flesh yet. Give me a little bit more. Listen very carefully. That's a tragic mistake and it will lead you away from God, not to God. As the Lord reveals things to us, he calls us to choose this day whom you will serve. We've all spent enough time living like the world. Now we're called to live like Christians are supposed to live. For the will of God. It is a profound and foolish waste of time for Christians to live like the world. Get off the fence. You might as well go live like the world if that's what you want to do. Go have a good time. You know what the fence brings? Guilt. You're always struggling, always fighting. Always, you, I want to, Paul says it in Romans chapter 7, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I want to do, I don't do. There's this struggle in my life. Then you're on the fence. But at the end of Romans 7, you know what he said? Who will deliver me from this body of sin, O wretched man that I am? Thanks be to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's way too many Christians, especially in our country, they're living on the fence. They got one foot in the world and one foot in Christianity. And someday they're going to make a commitment to one or the other. Listen, if that's the case, you're probably drifting farther and farther away from the Lord. Christians should look different than the world looks. We don't need worldly influence in our churches. We don't need to impress people with worldly entertainment things. We need the word of God simply taught to us so that we can apply it to our lives. We need to be challenged to grow and live more like Christ and less like the world. Unfortunately, in many Christian lives, you can look into the home and there's not a whole lot of difference. Now, if you're convicted by this 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 morning, I would encourage you to make a decision. Because right now you can decide who you're going to live for for the rest of your life. Is it for me or is it for Christ? I can tell you when I made the decision, my life radically changed. And I would never go back to living for me again. Because I love watching what God's going to do next. It brings so many, it's not easy. It brings so many difficult situations. It brings trials, it brings tribulations. But it brings incredible blessings, both now and eternity. It's an amazing place to be. When will we realize as Christians... We've spent enough time living like the rest of the world, living a double-minded life. We must start living as Christians. Now, let me show you something. This is really cool. You look at this list that Peter wrote out. Look what he says there. Lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. That was 2,000 years ago. What's changed? It's the same list that we have today before us. Mankind hasn't changed one bit, have we? We would look and go, yep, that's, yep, 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 that, that was me before I was saved. Or maybe that's you now, then you need to get saved. And I'm not going to go over every term there because we don't have time, but I want to draw your attention to one word, lewdness. And let me explain to you what that word means. It, it means this. It means to live without any sense of moral restraint, especially in regard to sexual immorality and violence. Wow. Do we see that on our television set? Do we see that in our culture today? You better believe it. There's the way the world lives. There's the way that the Christian lives. And it should be vastly different. Now remember, they're being persecuted for doing good. 
They're not living like the rest of the world. So people are persecuting them, killing them, taking their businesses, kicking them from their homes. And Peter's telling them, keep going. It's okay, there's a blessing coming. Yes, it's hard. It's not going to be easy, but you're going to get through it. But what happens to those people who are persecuting them? Why is it, how come God's not striking them dead? Look at verse 5. It says, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. What's going to happen to them? Don't worry. They've got theirs coming. Don't worry about it. They'll give an account. But then it says something interesting. It's not the same thing we read in chapter 3, verse 19. Here it says he preached to the, dis- there it says he preached to the disobedient spirits in prison. Here he's preaching to the gospel to those who are dead. Why? So they might be judged according to men in the flesh and they might live according to God in the spirits. Again, although there's some confusion here, I, here's what I believe. I believe this is where Jesus preached the gospel in Abraham's bosom. You see, Luke chapter 16 tells us that that's about Abraham's bosom. And I believe after his death and before his resurrection, he went down to Abraham's bosom or up to Abraham, wherever it was, he went there. And there was a group of people there gathered. They were the people who believed in God before Christ came. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of the forefathers, all the people that believed in God, that, were, that, were, that, that believed him, um, they all would have been there. Rahab would have been there. All, they didn't have to be Jewish, but they all would have been there. And he preached the gospel. You see, it wasn't that they, it was, it was, think of it this way, it was a completion of their salvation. They were complete. All of a sudden, he comes and he shared the gospel. They've been waiting for the Messiah to come. And now they see him and he preaches this gospel. And finally, their sins are forgiven too. He's, he's fulfilled that for them. This preaching to those who are dead was not the offer of a second chance. It wasn't like, oh no, here, here's chance number two. But it, think of it as the completion. They, they were already believers, but the price hadn't been paid yet. They had been faithful to God under the Old Testament law. They already believed in God. And now they got to hear Jesus preach the gospel message in person. Wow, what a blessing that must have been. As they, I believe they all accepted it, and they would have been forever with him. And in doing this... Jesus fulfilled the promise that he would proclaim liberty to the captives and he would lead captivity captive. This is what he said would happen. This is what Isaiah 61, Luke chapter 4. These are the captives that he set free. Now they're able to be free from their sin. That price has been paid. Remember, the recipients of this letter were facing persecution for their faith. They were being persecuted because they were Christians and they were not living like the rest of the world, which Christians should not do. And Peter reminds his readers, he says, hey, guys, I want you to remember something. Christ also suffered for doing good. The Christian life will not always be a life of blessing and roses or a bed of roses, so to speak. Persecution, suffering, and difficulty is part of it. But as we endure it, we can know we're in good company with the Lord, and there's blessing coming as we endure it. We need to have that hope and have that promise from him. Since Christ suffered, we're to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. We're to realize what he realized. And although you may be suffering for doing good, notice this or know this, it'll produce a blessing. There's a blessing coming in a future day. Jesus is victorious. Where is he? He's at the right hand of the Father. He's been given power over authorities, powers, and principalities. They've all been brought underneath of him. Our day is coming. What a blessing that is to think of that. We should no longer walk as the rest of the world walks. 
If you choose to be a Christian, and if you say you're a Christian, I challenge you to act like it. To talk like it, to think like it, to behave like it, to talk to other people like it. You should, there, there's no really such thing as undercover Christians. We don't need to be undercover in our country. You can share your faith. I would encourage you to do that. Share the hope that lies within you. We shouldn't take it for granted, but we should simply rise to the occasion. If Christ was willing to suffer, we too must also be willing to suffer if that's what he requires. Personally, I hope he doesn't require too much suffering. I don't like it. None of us do. And no one would say, no one, I wouldn't say, who wants suffering today? I do. No, you don't. But if you find yourself there, know that he is faithful. He is walking right beside of you and he is doing something through it. And on the other side, there will be blessing as you endure it. And you might be saying, Rob, I'm already made that decision to follow Christ. I'm already living for the will of God. Praise the Lord. Now keep on. Finish the race. Finish the race. Do you know how many people I've watched not finish the race well? I have many, many friends of mine that I've watched come up into faith. They served, started serving the Lord. Some of them even pastors who then just drift off. It's like, what just happened to you? Where, 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 where did you go? You, you, you fell in sin or whatever happened. You didn't finish the race. If you're on the fence, today's the day to get off. Make a decision. Because even by not making a decision, you're making a decision. You're, if, well, I, I like being part in the world, part in Christ. I want to know that I'm okay. I don't know that you are okay. I can't tell you that with one foot in the world and one foot in, in, in I'm, I'm a, I got fire insurance. I prayed the prayer. I can't tell you that's okay. What I can tell you is if you abide in Christ, he abides in you. And if, you've, if, you've, if you believe on him and you're following him, you're saved. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have, no one's going to steal it from you. You're not going to misplace your salvation. That's between you and him. And if you don't know the Lord today, if you come to the place where I, I, I don't have a relationship with the Lord, then you need to get one. Then you need to get one. Otherwise, you're going to be like these spirits imprisoned. You will find yourself forever in the lake of fire someday. Revelation chapter, I think it was 19, talks about it. And that's not where I'd like to see anybody go. And you say, Rob, why do you talk about that sometimes or so much even? Why do you always bring up hell? Because that's what the Bible talks about. There's a real simple choice here. I, I wouldn't be doing my job as a pastor if I didn't challenge you to live the Christian life or to choose between, choose this day whether I'm going to follow the Lord or I'm going to follow my flesh. Your flesh will lead you to death and to hell, I'm telling you. That's what the Bible teaches, and you get to choose. So whether you're young or old, you don't know how much time you have left. We don't know what the future holds. You might think, I've got years to make a decision. You might not. Or you might think, I, can, I don't have much time left. That's okay. You can choose from this moment forward to follow the Lord and to believe on him. And that would be my prayer for you. So let's pray. Father, we just come before you. And as we study what Peter's writing to this persecuted church, this church that's enduring suffering and difficulty for the simple fact they're Christians. Yet you promised them blessing coming. Lord, would you help us keep that eternal perspective? For many of us here this morning might find ourselves suffering in difficulty. May we be reminded that if we endure, there's a blessing coming. May we not be tempted to follow our flesh. Instead, may we put to death our flesh. May we not give it any say in how we live our lives. May we be the ones that direct our flesh and not allowing our flesh to direct us. And may we choose to live for the will of God. And may you reveal your will to us. Some of it is easy to understand and others can be difficult. So give us that understanding. May we not forget that to do all of this, you've given us the Holy Spirit. You've empowered us. 
You've given us all that we need. It's just a simple decision for us to make. And then a path for us to walk on. So I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that this morning they would choose to follow you. And if there's someone that's on the fence, Lord, may you convict them severely. So they would turn to you. And they would choose from this moment to live for the will of God. And if there's someone, a saint, that is already living for the will of God, may you encourage them to continue on. Remind them of your goodness. Lord, we read that you're long-suffering, but even after 120 years, the rain came. In Jesus' name, amen.